America, my name is Aimeose Frimpong, and you are watching The Black Athenians. And I have a special, I try to do, you know, I try to do local politics in a way that actually makes sense to anywhere that there are black people who are having a problem surrounded by a lot of non-black money. And uh, San Francisco is one of those places, but so is Mobile, Alabama. So is Columbia, uh, Columbia, uh, both Georgia and South Carolina, Columbus, Georgia and Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, St. Louis, and pretty much anywhere there are black people struggling, surrounded by pretty much in any direction, non-black money. Uh, this kind of local politics, uh, I, I try to give the quality of education that will help you try to make your communities whole. And one of those places, believe it or not, is San Francisco. I'm from, I spent about 10 years in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, it, it, my story is one of those stories that you hear about, like the Great Migration. My parents moved out to California uh, because of the Klan. And then now I'm priced out of California <laughs> because of... I don't know, California Democrats. So there's a way in which, one, black people were always moving, and that's a problem. We should be able to fight where we're at. I should be able to go back to California where I belong, but instead I'm in Georgia, so I'm just gonna have to fix Georgia. But one person who stayed in California is my guest today, and it's Shahid Buttar, and he's running against uh, everyone's, not everyone's favorite, some people's favorite Democratic politician based in San Francisco, California, Nancy Pelosi for the spot in U.S. Congress. And there's a way in which California is progressive and California is democratic, but yet California is somehow very anti-poor and is shedding black people. I don't know how that happened. I think Shahid can kind of explain how you can both be progressive and yet shed black people. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to bring him in right now. Hold on. Let me get him in the shot. And you are here. Hello, Shahid. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Army. Great to be with you. Thanks for bringing me on. Yeah. So I want to get right to the meat. How can it be that, you know, we vote black people, myself being one of them, we vote Democrat all the time. How could it be that the party that we support anywhere from 85 to 95 percent and who in, at the federal level needs black people to, like, to vote 85 to 95 percent for them to even be viable? How is it that our progressive Democrats, our Democrats are not actually securing the quality of policies we need as both working class people and poor people and black people to be made whole and to live in great places like San Francisco? Well, the hole in the bucket, the reason why, uh, you know, to take your framing, a city run by Democrats and self-described progressives can shed black people is unfortunately because the Democratic Party is more committed to capital than it is to our communities. And the story of housing in San Francisco, frankly, illustrates it as clearly as anything else. And in the middle of the pandemic that we're all experiencing right now, those longstanding challenges around including affordable housing to prevent the waves of displacement and gentrification that have frankly changed the composition of our city here in San Francisco. And that is, you know, the very same dynamic is plaguing cities from coast to coast, uh, while other cities frankly are challenged by the inverse uh, sort of problem of, of depopulation and flight uh, out of you know, some of the Rust Belt cities. And I think there's a, there's a challenge here in terms of making sure that uh, not only that our communities can thrive, but that, for instance, housing is treated like a right instead of a commodity and an excuse for some people to seek wealth. Ultimately, we privilege wealth seeking 
before basic needs. And that's at the root of our problem. And, and unfortunately, Democrats are as much a part of that problem as Republicans. Uh, so this rights-based demo, uh, discourse, which, and if you don't know, I, I tell people all the time, rights are just what freedom looks like when it's externalized. <laughs> the it, conditions for me to externalize freedoms are rights, right? And they have to be recognized by other people um, because I can, I can have all the sorts of rights, rights in the world, but if I can't actually externalize them, if I can't actually go to a hospital, then I don't have a right to healthcare. If I, don't, if I get like, harassed by saying something, then I don't actually have a right to free speech. Right, so right. Like, rights are what freedom looks like when it's externalized and preferably codified and recognized publicly. Can so, I press on that for a second? Yeah. Like you're absolutely right, and you know we settle for words on paper as if they were rights <laughs> when they aren't at all. You know, like for instance, we have a commitment in the Constitution, our founding document, the very first amendment says the Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or assembly or the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Say that to somebody in Portland, <laughs> right? I mean, how yeah. meaningful are our rights? It's the, what the words on the paper bear in too many instances, little relationship to the facts on the ground. I come from a school in legal analysis and, and constitutional analysis described as legal realism. And it was the ascendant mode of legal analysis in the sixties and the seventies. It's fallen out of favor since, but Two generations of lawyers have been taught to view the law as the words on the paper, which are meaningless. The law is the fact on the ground. That is what the law is. So we might have a First Amendment on paper, but don't try to tell me that we actually have a right to assembly or protest in the wake of recent events. That's a, that's a farce, and we should acknowledge it as such. Right, and the government's job is to actually secure the exercise of those rights so that they're actually made meaningful and made manifest and yeah. not just exist on paper. Right? That's right. So, and so far, and so I, I appreciate, since I appreciate freedom, Democrats don't talk about freedom a lot. You know, it's going to come up in the Republican con uh, convention next week a lot. They're going to talk about freedom and jobs. Unfortunately, they're going to do it poorly, but they're actually going to talk about it. Whereas in the last few days, I don't even think I've heard the word freedom mentioned at the DNC. And I think that's a problem uh, because I, 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 I think this should be the land of a free, which means, which means I think we need our rights secured. And I want the government to secure us rights and actually think in terms of rights. Because if you don't think in terms of rights, then everything becomes a commodity and something that can be purchased on the market. Instead yes. of housing being a right, it's just housing for those who can afford it, which is a different thing. It should Absolutely. be freedom. We're not talking about freedom for those who can afford it. We're talking about freedom for all residents and citizens of the United States. So, like, we don't, I don't want, like, if it's up to Democrats, they might even go back to poll taxes. I don't even know. Like, if you're just going to commodify everything. We certainly have been racing back in that direction ever since the, I think the name of the case, the Supreme Court case uh, was Shelby County. And it basically struck down uh, section five of the Voting Rights Act, which was the pre-clearance enforcement provisions that gave the Voting Rights Act its teeth. And in the years since that decision by the Roberts Court, right-wing Supreme, uh, pardon me, right-wing state legislatures around the country have been restricting voting rights, passing new laws to prevent the exercise of what was once a right that the government facilitated, just like in the way I was describing that our First Amendment rights have withered, in fact, despite the words on the paper. Similarly, you know, the right to vote isn't even on the paper. It's not anywhere guaranteed in the federal constitution. And if we look at it through this lens of legal realism, it too has been shredded. One last point I just make really quick before I throw it back at you when you were talking about freedom and its conspicuous absence in the rhetoric used by the Democratic Party. 
it is particularly poignant now. I'm thinking about people have recently come to be aware of Bernie Sanders' longstanding concern about authoritarianism, his very prescient concern about authoritarianism in the context of this criminal president. And if we are not talking about freedom and liberty and the preservation of our most basic norms, in the face of the autocracy that he presents, <clears throat> I fear that we are doing ourselves in the future a disservice. All right, so irresponsible government, uh, not only for ourselves and our current situation, and forget the emergency, you can say, well, you know, we have to suspend some of these, this rights talk for the pandemic, but that's not what's going on. We're just, we're suspending this rights talk because we're not very good about talking about the conditions of freedom and how we need government to secure our, uh, our rights insofar as it secures our freedom and welfare, right? And, and what happens when we commodify, when we put everything on the market, when we say like, well, you know, the private market will secure you a job. When the pandemic has like fundamentally reshaped the private market for the foreseeable future, we can't, we can't expect it to secure us a job, so we need like a job in other ways. And another, uh, there's a politician out in Georgia by the name of Richard Winfield, who I'm a, a huge fan of, and he says, First of all, if we're serious about rights, we need to even talk about lawyers like yourself being guaranteed access to lawyers guaranteed as a right. Oh, absolutely. Here in San Francisco, San Francisco and New York City were the first two cities in the country to establish a right to civil representation for people facing eviction. We were just talking about the housing crisis, one of the most meaningful ways that cities have taken action to try to protect communities from waves of displacement is to ensure that when people face eviction, they can get access to a government paid lawyer, just like you do, for instance, if you're charged for under with a crime. Uh, under 1960s Supreme Court jurisprudence informed by that mode of legal realism we were describing before, that's how we got the right to counsel. That's how we got the Miranda warnings. That's how we got the rights to not be judged by racially exclusive juries. That was an era of jurisprudence that recognized that our government has the responsibility to make our rights real. And uh, when we look in the context of the right to civil, civil counsel for people facing eviction, that could be guaranteed at the federal level. There's no reason why Congress can't pass grants to then be passed on to the states to provide that kind of representation lawyers for people who need them to prevent them from being put on the street. Just to make that even sharper, right now in the middle of the pandemic, we are hurtling towards a preventable wave of evictions. The federal protections have expired for unemployment insurance. Some states have eviction moratoriums. It's not in place around the country. There is a bill that has been proposed in Congress for the better part of four months by Representative Ilhan Omer from Minnesota, the Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Act, H.R. 6515, and it would cancel the payments for rent and mortgages during the course of the pandemic. It would also provide government support for small landlords to ensure that right. banks and corporate landlords pay the cost of housing during the pandemic. But to go back to your original question, how do we lose communities of color in major cities, even when they're run by Democrats? The corporate Democratic Party doesn't support Ilhan's bill. There is a vast disparity between the squad and the most progressive members of Congress and the corporate Democrats who continue to promote the interests of their corporate patrons. And, and it's not just a disparity. I want to be clear. It's not just a disparity. There's antagonism. Yes, like, absolutely. You are getting pushback. It's not like, well, you know, we're all part of the same party. They see you as an existential threat in San Francisco, a city run by Democrats to the bones. That's right. It's absolutely antagonistic. And it's, you know, I'd, I'd remind people of how Nancy Pelosi uh, originally treated Ilhan Omer before they originally uh, finally you know, mended their fences and 
the squad now, you know, describes Nancy Pelosi as Mama Bear. Nancy Pelosi had all elbows for representatives Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar early in this congressional session. She opened the door to Donald Trump's racist attacks on Ilhan. Uh, she denigrated the squad as a handful of voices, uh, dismissed the Green New Dream as uh, the Green New Deal as the Green New Dream or whatever. You know, you see this denigration and not just antagonism, I would actually say suppression of voices committed to the future. And, and this is a suppression that isn't just in rhetoric, it's a suppression in policy. For instance, the very first thing that Representative Ocasio-Cortez did when she got to Capitol Hill was, was participate in a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office because Pelosi has been so, frankly, uh, Toned down. unwilling to pursue a climate justice agenda. And that was how the Green New Deal became known, was in the context of that sit-in. That's how the Sunrise Movement became a household name. And, and in, in the face, face of that action, Nancy Pelosi was not friendly to the spot. And then the so one thing that's been uh, I've been thinking about lately is the hullabaloo over the post office, USPS, and the idea that, well, you know, it has been losing money, so maybe it could be run more efficiently by privatizing uh, features of it. But I think that just speaks to the notion that we expect the post office to make money. We don't expect, we don't expect public schools to make <laughs> even. There you right? go. Like, well, you know, they just need to have more bake sales because we expect the public schools to cover their operating costs. Like, if, if that were the case, we would say we have a confused notion of the role in government in securing education. So there's, no question. there's a way in which we have a confused notion in the role and how to evaluate effective government services. Like the deficit is like a, a horrible way to evaluate uh, the government service, and like even like the deficit ren uh, rendered miniature in the in the in the form of particular institutions. It's kind of a horrible way to evaluate the the effectiveness and propriety of government services, right? So I just wrapped up the interview with Shahid Buttar, and uh, we had a sound problem that was starting to creep in. I've I've since fixed it, but we can't. Uh, air the rest of the interview. I will tell you that he is fantastic. And if you like anything that you heard uh, in that, you know, 16 minutes or whatever, I think you need to go over to his website. I just put in Shahid Buttar, Shahid Buttar in the Google and it will give you him. And I, I, I think he's what we need to hear for the good of the nation. So thank you for your time. And I will talk to you on uh, you know, anon, another time. Later. Bye.